Um, I can't wait until we or we I can't wait until we organize the first ever hot hand theory pickup game and we figure out which <laughs> which member of Nick's Twitter has the highest lube. <laughs> such a weird <laughs> sentence. But yeah, we're, we're going to have to figure that out. We're going to work on the lube thing. Uh, hey, my pick- hey, it, it can be a co-ed game, you know, like it can it doesn't it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be. <laughs> We can, we can, we, we can cut this, cut that, cut that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like, it could go from being cut to being the intro. Who knows where it's going to end up. This is Hot Hand Theory. This is a podcast where we talk about the NBA and break things down from an analytical perspective. I'm your co-host XJ. He is my brilliant co-host Jeff. Jeff, I'm not even going to ask how you're doing. I, we got too much to jump into. Um, we got to start making pods that are less than three and a half hours long and that break up into more and more clips as we <laughs> as we go along. Um, let's jump into talking Knicks. Let's jump into talking Knicks. There's a lot to talk about about this franchise and about this team, where we're at this year. Um, do you have any broad takeaways on what we've seen of late and uh, anything that jumps out at you to talk about right out the gates? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, 16 games of the season, we're 20% of the way through the season. I mean, I guess you have to start with Julius Randle. That sucks. I don't like talking about him when it's like this. It's much more enjoyable to talk about him when he's providing the impact he did last season. Um, I don't think people are here to listen to narratives or, you know, the state of the the conversation around Julius Randle. I think people want to hear, you know, objective analysis and facts. So I'm just going to say um, some objective facts about Julius Randle. His offense has been better than his defense this season. I think anybody watching can, and some of the impact metrics would disagree, but I think most of the impact metrics are due to the small sample size overweighing his importance in good defensive lineups. I think if you watch the film, he's very clearly hurting every lineup he plays in defensively. Most of that is his fault. Some of that is the fact that the Knicks have went away from letting him switch onto smaller guys. And as we saw in the third quarter last night, when he was, to be clear, going off offensively, when he's not allowed to switch, he's lost in pick and roll. He doesn't know, he doesn't know where to drop to. He doesn't know what level to show at. He's just, he's useless honestly in pick and roll when he's not switching and Devin Booker torched him. Um, So if you can agree that his offense has been better than his defense so far this season, then you should also be willing to agree that his true shooting percentage is 48% and he hasn't been a good offensive player. He's been a negative offensive player, his direct output. He's not helping the Knicks this season at all. He's not, he's just been a bad basketball player for the Knicks. Do I think that's going to turn around? I do. But I don't, I just don't want to talk about it. I don't want to do this anymore. Like I, this is just so, it's so disparaging every single game to try to figure out how Julius Randle is secretly helping the team. Where's gravity is coming from? Like, I just want him to play better or sadly to just have it be somebody else's problem. I don't know if you're there yet, but it's just, it's so incredibly frustrating that every single game is – I mean, even the final play. I, I actually think the final play is a good summation of what Julius Randle is doing to this Knicks team because 
Jalen Brunson wasn't in, or excuse me, not the final play, the, the, the Devin Booker three. Jalen Brunson got benched for that play. And I truly believe that Jalen Brunson was able to get benched for that play because Tom Thibodeau knew it wouldn't be a problem. Because Tom Thibodeau knew that Jalen Brunson cares first and foremost about what's best for the team. And so Tibbs put Josh Hart in, left RJ out there, had quickly out there, and then Randall and Mitch. Why would Quinton Grimes not be on the court instead of Julius Randall? In what objective universe is Quinton Grimes not a better, more valuable defender on the court? I got some pushback to that this morning. People said we need Julius Randall's rebounding. We've talked about Julius Randall's rebounding enough. For the for, firstly, it's unlikely in a tie game when the shot clock's turned off that a rebound matters, anyways. But even on possessions when rebounding do, do when rebounds do matter, Julius Randall's impact is minuscule. The difference between Quinton Grimes and Julius Randle as defenders is far more meaningful and more pronounced than Julius Randle and Quinton Grimes as rebounders on a last shot. Um, not an acceptable explanation to me. And in my opinion, Tom Thibodeau knows this. I, I have to give Tom Thibodeau the benefit of the doubt to understand that Quinton Grimes is a much more impactful defender in that moment. And the reason Julius Randle's out there is because he doesn't think Randall will take it well. And to me, that's a summation of who he is as a person, as one of the best players on your team, his volatility. I just I don't know how far you can go with someone like that. And this is just another example of it against Phoenix yesterday. Yeah, you said a lot. Um, I mean, let's start with the end there. Obviously, it should be obvious at this point. I agree with you that it is better for the team if Randall's not out there at the end in that last possession and that, you know, somebody who's a much superior defender in Quentin Grimes, especially given the circumstances where um, <laughs> where you know Booker's getting that last shot. Um, I, I have to say, like, during the Phoenix game, I, I and this is where I, I totally acknowledge that, you know, my eye test may deceive me at times and you know I rely on a lot of the data to supplement what I believe that I'm seeing but I didn't think that Booker was particularly like amazing in that game honestly I thought he made a lot of bad decisions um he was forcing it a ton like forcing shots um the Knicks I think made him a more impactful player with like their double teams of him and and kind of like really trying to get the ball out of his hand so aggressively I felt like he was at some point, we were kind of shooting them out of the game. Um, and yeah, he had yeah. 28 points on 10 of 25 shooting. <laughs> yeah, he was. He, so it's not, I, he wasn't great. No, I, I didn't feel like he was great. And, you know, speaking of narratives, the narratives after this game is, oh, you know, Booker, so amazing. Booker with a last second dagger, um, tremendous player, didn't need Durant, didn't need, um, you know, Bradley Beal. I didn't think he was that great. So, but you, at the same time, he was demanding the ball consistently every time the Suns would be on offense. And instead of just playing four on four, because that's how the Knicks would play him, like they had like RJ pretty much face guarding him, like way above the three point line. And I'm like, if I was Phoenix, I would just play four and four. Like that, that seems fun. Uh, have a, have a defense stop you four and four. Um, I don't care how good you are in the NBA. Uh, you're not going to you're not going to play as good team team defense with four players. Um, But anyway, you knew Booker was getting the ball and you knew he's going to want to take the shot. Uh, You've got to have somebody like Quentin Grimes out there who is a much better perimeter defensive player. And I agree with you that the reason why Randall is out there is because he wouldn't take it well. And 
I think that Tibbs doesn't want to lose him. And I think that that's a consistent narrative and a consistent way that at least like from a fan perspective and an outsider perspective, it seems to be the case oftentimes is that there's this concern about losing Randall if you make a move that you know, seems to damage his psyche in some way. And I think that that is, that is an underrated intangible negative of having a player like Julius Randall on your team. And I think that we see that kind of thing far too often. I agree with you that, you know, his offense has been bad. I will say his true shooting uh, being 48%. Most of that comes from his shooting earlier in the season. His true shooting. I mean, you know, as far as from a true shooting perspective, He's been better, not much better, but he's been better uh, of late in, in terms of like the last like seven games or so. In his last 10 games, it's 51%. So, okay. So, so he's been <laughs> slightly better. <laughs> My whole point is we have to raise the bar. This is an all NBA guy. Like, what is he? If, if yeah, if you're gonna, if you're gonna build the team around him, the bar has to be higher. Like, sure, he's been better than the worst player in the NBA. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And um, as far as just like the the case of the curious case of Julius Randle, like I have believed and, you know, this is this is probably a narrative generated idea that I'm going to share. But I've believed that you you can't win a championship with Julius Randle on the team. Um, Julius Randle being uh, one of your best two or three players and then soon to be one of your top one or two paid highest paid players um, as far as like percentage of the salary cap when he gets <laughs> re-signed or extended. Um, I don't, I think that that's the death knell for your championship chances. I, I genuinely believe that. And I've voiced that consistently through last year's all NBA season, which I've consistently also said, I believe is the best season we'll ever see from Julius Randall before or after. Um, I, I do think he's going to get better. I do think he's going to get better. I do think he's going to play better. There was a third quarter burst again in the Suns game where he was like bullying everyone and getting to the rim at will and showed a little bit of that all NBA Julius Randle on offense, at least. Um, I, I loved seeing Devin Booker try to stay in front of him and Julius essentially just treat him like a, a traffic cone or a chair and just bully through him and get to the rim. Um, and he showed that a couple of times and it was like, whoa, this guy is unstoppable, but we have seen that enough times. We've seen enough stretches and spurts and moments where Julius Randle looks completely unstoppable and unguardable, and it is not sustained. It is not sustained. We know that at this point. It is not sustained. It is not going to be sustained. It may be There may be these really high peaks during a season, but there are going to be these really low lows in terms of his shooting, his efficiency, his shot selection, his demeanor, his effort level. All of those things are going to wane. They're going to go up and they're going to go down. And that at, at this point is, is enough of a clear statistical trend and observational trend that we can believe and we can assume that it's going to continue. And I don't think that level of uh, that lack of sustainability and consistency really is going to gear, gear you towards deep playoff success and eventually winning a championship. So to me, to me, I think the answer has been what it's always been, which is that, you know, Julius Randle cannot be on this team like long term. And I think that we're really rapidly approaching this kind of decision day where 
Randall's going to be here and you're not going to lose him for nothing. And so he is going to get extended. He is going to get extended if he's still here. And so I just believe something needs to happen. Something needs to give. I, I can see the Knicks kind of moving closer. I'm not saying that they are, but I could, I could imagine the Knicks moving closer to being in this position where they're like, yeah, you know what? We do have to do something. We do have to move on. We have seen enough. Um, I don't think they were there. I think I don't think they were there, but I can imagine them being closer to being there. So that's kind of where I'm at with Julius Randle. I just believe that at some point we're going to have to part ways and hopefully the Knicks are, are getting closer to that point to believing that as well, especially with, you know, the emergence of RJ Barrett, uh, who I want to talk about as well. But yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with Randle. So let's let's zoom out a little bit here and talk more about the NBA as a whole regard related to Julius Randle. Where does he fit? That that's the that's always been the biggest problem to me. The, to me, I don't think he fits anywhere. I don't think he's going to have suitors or people who wants to trade for him. And I think that that leaves the only logical conclusion as well the the Knicks can have shown that they can talk themselves into Julius Randle. They definitely value continuity and they definitely want to bring a special feeling back to the garden uh, in terms of like loyalty and people who have been on the team a long time. You know, they want that nineties vibe back. They want to find their Ewing. They want to find their Starks. And if Julius Randle hits free agency and you don't have anybody blowing him away with offers, which I don't think there will be teams that do. The only outcome to me is he comes back to the Knicks and says, all right, I'll take a team friendly deal. And, you know, it's still a lot of money because he has the accolades to, you know, ask for a decent sum of money. And the Knicks are going to end up paying him, you know, something North of $200 million. And I don't, do, do you, because you, because me and you very seem to very strongly disagree here, and I've talked to Schwinn about this, and Schwinn disagrees, and so I do think the burden of proof, or not proof, but I do think the ball is kind of in your court to provide an alternative solution. Because I don't see another team that's going to be like Julius Randle is our answer. If you're a young team, do you want this volatile personality in there leading? I don't think you do. If you're a team that's close. Has Julius Randle proved that he can be the guy to put you over the top? I don't think so. So in my opinion, the only team that would take Julius Randle away from the Knicks is a team that feels desperate and is sort of similar to like the Blazers trying to satiate Damian Lillard with Jeremy Grant. Where is a team like that that is going to maybe take a flyer on Julius Randle and hope it works out? Because I think that's what the, the – and I don't mean to disparage his his two great seasons have been great, but – I. I don't think it's enough, and I think that the Knicks long-term would be better off if he wasn't on the team. And I think if the Knicks are saying that, the, the 29 other teams are going to be like, okay, if the Knicks don't want him after what he's done for them, why do we want him? You know. So what, what team yeah. do you think is the answer to that? No, I, I, I think this is a fair point, um, which is why I would say, yeah, this is you know not not germane to the answer to answering your question, but I've always been a proponent of trading Julius Randle when he is having his best impact. So last year, um, when he is in the middle of an All NBA season, um, or is displaying you know an All NBA level stretch, those are the times when I felt like it's made the most sense to trade Julius Randle. But at least from a fan perspective and what I hear 
what I hear constantly is that, well, you can't trade him. You need him. He's an all NBA level player. And then you're taking a step back if you move him. The problem is that we know at this point it is not going to be sustained. So to me, I've always been a proponent of trading Julius at um, his peak value, whatever whatever you might believe that peak value is, at least at his highest value um, or, or close to his highest value. So that to me, I think that's a miscalculation on in terms of like the front office, in terms of even from a fan perspective. I think that that the time to trade him was. Um, and regardless of what you think about Obi Toppin, I don't think Obi Toppin is like the answer. And honestly, in a vacuum, he's not a better basketball player than Julius Randle. But Obi Toppin would have allowed you a lot more flexibility, a lot more synergy. Um, you know, you can plug and play a lot differently. And you're not forced to build your team around Julius Randle because uh, to, uh, to build your team around Obi Toppin. Because with Julius Randle, even if he comes back on a team-friendly deal, it's not just the percentage of the salary cap that he's going to take up. It's the usage. Like Julius Randle is at a 28 usage this year. That is 91st percentile in the NBA. He's been terrible. He's at a 28 usage. Like two years ago, he was at a 27.9 usage. I think it's over 30. Is it over 30 now? I'm going by dunks and threes for, for uses. Maybe it hasn't updated yesterday's game. No, um, dunks and threes is usually pretty good. Um, no, you're right. Basketball reference has him at 28.6%. It is highest on the team, though. I could have sworn I saw 30 today on Twitter. But, yeah, you're right. My bad. No, it's all good. A, a 28 usage is incredible for someone who is having this level of deleterious effect on your team on both ends, uh, potentially. So I, I just think, like, there's no way you're going to have Randall play this, like, bit role where he is, you know, playing defense and just being a ball mover. <laughs> it's, I, that's, I'm sorry, I made myself laugh by putting Julius Randall and ball mover in the same sentence and and just kind of, like, you know, picking his spots. It's just not going to happen. So it's it's not just the, the, the percentage of the salary cap. It's the role on the team. And I, I, it's like a Carmelo Anthony situation, you know, later in Carmelo's career where it's like, you can bring him in. Is he going to just be this like side piece to, to what you're trying to do? Like, I, I, I don't see him ever being in that role as far as like teams, as far as teams where he could go. I agree. I think at this point, since we've waited to kind of get to this low point in terms of his value, and I do think his value is going to increase as the season goes on. I think he will perform much better. I think towards the trade deadline this year, his value will be higher than it is right now. Um, but I do think it does ha- kind of have to be a desperate team if we're looking at the landscape right now. I, I you know, the Lakers were that team for me. Uh, they don't seem as desperate <laughs> of late. And so that probably just wouldn't work at this point. I yeah, don't think it ever would have worked, to be honest. You think there was I no point when the Lakers would have no, been desperate enough to, to, to put a flyer? I mean, to me, he is like, the like would have been the alternative to Hachimura like I I I think he would have been that guy I just don't think I think they're too smart to think that that LeBron Randall and Davis on the court at the same time could work and I I don't I don't think that could work you might be right you might be right and I and I think that the only thing that would have changed that is a level of desperation to where they they are running out of options and and couldn't do anything else and could get him a seemingly an all NBA player on, on a really cheap bargain uh, trade. Yeah, that's, that's a good point because at the same time they did trade for Russell Westbrook, which. Right. It's just, you know, a, I'm, I'm always going to pat my, I'm always going to pat myself on the back. The day the trade happened, I said that the Lakers traded, got rid of three players who would be more 
impactful to the Lakers on their own than Russell Westbrook would be on the Lakers. So, and I got laughed at immensely for that, but I mean, Caruso, Caldwell Pope and Kuzma all like that, you know, that is a very under, I know the Lakers have righted the ship and I know LeBron is amazing much longer than they thought he'd be amazing. And Davis is amazing. So that's a big part of it. They could have Kyle Kuzma, Alex Caruso and Contavious Caldwell Pope on their team. <laughs> that would be the best five man lineup in basketball. And it wouldn't yeah. be close. I don't think that would be, that would be a better, that would be better than the Nuggets. They would, they, they would have won another championship. And the fact that they got up two one against Phoenix in that 2021 postseason, And then Anthony Davis got hurt and they were like, Holy shit. We need Russell Westbrook is one of the most baffling things to me. I think like I, I can remember that was just, so mind-boggling because the thing teams need to understand is planning for scenarios where your best players get hurt is stupid. I'm sorry. I don't, for lack of a better word, it's stupid. If LeBron James gets hurt, the Lakers aren't winning a championship. It doesn't matter if you have Russell Westbrook instead of Alex Caruso. It doesn't matter that Alex or that Russell Westbrook has this marginal edge from as an initiator compared to Alex, Alex Caruso. You're not winning a championship either way. You're not contending for a championship either way. You are contending for a championship if LeBron James is the best version of himself and Anthony Davis is the best version of himself. Now, isolate for those scenarios, what is the best team? The best team is surrounding them with elite role players who can provide impact in their roles next to them on high usages. Caruso, Kuzma, and Contavious Caldwell-Pope are like those three exact players. And I, I just, that is so shocking. Those are the gods of that category, essentially. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Maybe not Kuzma and as much, but yeah, the other two. Not not Wizards Kuzma, but I mean, he was the third best player on a championship team, like yeah, before he yeah. went to the Wizards. He was a great, he was a great helper on those teams. And it's just, you know, uh, so to go back to your point, no, I, I think the Lakers learned their lesson. I do not think they have interest in Julius Randle. Um, yeah, I, I think you're right. Of course, at this at this stage that we're talking about right now, um, I do I do think like I I I wanna I wanna not make sure that I don't go down the road of 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 we we kick around teams that might take a flyer Julius Randle because we know like you know the the, the pickings are gonna be slim there, um, and there are a you lot. Know of who, teams that... You know who I think is a sleeper to to go after Julius Randle? Sure, sure, the Detroit Pistons. The Detroit so, Pistons. That's they that's have a really one. bad GM. That's 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 check mark. <laughs> che- that's that's box check number one. Their their yeah. GM doesn't really seem to have a clue of what's going on. Um, and they need shooting at the wing and forward. They they need someone who can. That is what they need. They need to help Ivy and Cunningham. They want to keep keep Asar Thompson on the court. They like twenty eight percent from three. Julius Randle is the answer to the to that question. Listen, 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 buddy. He shot forty percent one year. You know, like this is this is this is a two time All NBA player. I think this stuff would work on Troy Weaver. Um, I mean, I mean, Mister Weaver. Imagine a lineup of Cade Cunningham, Jaden Ivey, Asar Thompson, Julius Randle, and Jalen Duren. That's damage. Will damage will be done. No, at I mean, least seriously, twenty-five I, wins for that team. Yeah, at least sure. twenty-five wins. I think I, I actually think you know, if you're a Pistons fan out there, I apologize. I'm, I'm I don't mean to, you know, throw to dirt pile on to, <laughs> to pile on. Yeah, but I do think that they have an opening at power forward. They, they're right now starting Isaiah Stewart out of position at power forward. 
or at least they were when Isaiah Stewart was healthy. Um, I think they could talk themselves into Julius Randle. Well, I mean, we can only hope. I, I just think like it's just frustrating to me because there were so many other times to trade Julius Randle and, and people would say, uh, you know, what could you get for him? Like what, a, a first round pick or two? It's like now we would uh, grovel to get a first round pick for, for Julius Randle. So like it's just a frustration. Um, at this point, you're holding him and just hoping he starts to play better towards the middle of the season and closer towards the trade, trade deadline. And then I think you pull the trigger on whatever you can get at, the, at that point. Um, so that's kind of what I'm thinking. This is the roller coaster, though. And I think we're doomed to be on it forever. He's playing bad. Gonna... He's playing bad. And, you know, we say, oh, well, we know how much better he can play. How can you trade him now? How can you trade him now for the low value he's getting? Then he's playing well. And it's, oh, well, he's playing too good. And they definitely can't get a better player than Julius Randle back in this trade. We got to keep him. And they're just going to be on this trade, th- this roller coaster in yeah. perpetuity. And I, and I've, and I've, <laughs> I mean, I've, I've been the number. I want to say, I, I, maybe I'm wrong, but as far as I've seen, I've been the number one kind of uh, alarm, alarm ringer for that same indefinite cycle that they've been on. I, I, I've been talking about that for years, and not just because I've been an Obi Toppin proponent, but because I have. I feel like I've seen enough of the instability from Julius Randle and it, there seems to be no, no end to it. So I think my, my hope is that the combination of seeing how Randle started this season, um, the sample size now of seeing the, the, the aggressive swings back and forth in his play and his performance level. Um, and also with the idea in mind that a, an extension extension talks will be coming up. All of those things combine that this front office realizes that they need to get off of that cycle. I, I just I just believe that they, they are going to get there. I think it's late. I think it's late. And to me, it would have been better to be early than late. But I think they'll get there. I think they will. And I, I can only hope. Because if not, we're, we're going to be, you know, the Knicks are going to have Julius Randle on an extension. He's going to be in New York until he's 34 or 33 or 34 years old. Um and that, to me, again, is the nail in the coffin on their title hopes. I don't think you can have a high usage player commanding a huge percentage of the salary cap and expect to really compete. I just, I just, you know, to be a real contender. And the, this idea that, okay, well, you know, after you sign them, then you can trade them as a part of a star package. Who is trading a star that is going to want to bring on Julius Randle on a long-term deal in his 30s? I just, that, to me, that's the most... Uh, that's the most unlikely scenario of all of this, which is that you extend him and then trade him as a part of a star deal. I just, I, I couldn't imagine, imagine trading Joel Embiid and being like, yeah, we'll take Julius Randle back as like the, the, the DeMar DeRozan of that deal. Like, I, I, I just think that that's a faulty comparison. I think that he has to go now, you know? I think that they've shown more than almost anything else that they're happy to, Kick the bucket down the kick the bucket of competence down the road and figure that out later. I agree. So I don't think they, I I don't think I don't think they'd have an answer for you. Like if you said like if you sat down with Leon Rose and you were like, okay, you think that Julius Randle will be tradable on this contract? Who is taking him on this contract? I think he'd just say, I don't know. We'll figure it out when we get there. Like when we want to trade him, and they're just going to keep the, like right now they're more they're still more concerned with raising the floor than raising the ceiling. Um, and, and, I, and I, yeah, go ahead. Finish your thought. I just wanted to finish and say, 
it is, I mean, especially with this head coach who, you know, I mean, they have one power forward on the roster. So like they, Julius Randle, you know, at least to, to them, they have one power forward on the roster. Obviously you and I would be more comfortable, you know, playing RJ Barrett at power forward and being like, okay, this is your chance to take on that Jason Tatum, Jimmy Butler role. Let's see what you got kid. You know, like, I think we would be more comfortable with that, but I don't think this team is. And so I just, I continue to think that I think that they value what Julius Randle does, his position, just the unique things he does, whether that's right or wrong. I think they value it more than a lot of people give credit for. I think he's going to be around a long term. Actually, funny story. I am um, on the post game the other night. I, I made a comment. Uh, I said, I think if you ask Leon, I think they want Julius Randle's jersey in the rafters. And some guy in the comments said, Julius Randle's jersey in the rafters, question mark, unsub, you fucking idiot. <laughs> and I was like, whoa. I, I was like, I don't think that. I think that that's what they think. And he was so mad. Was so I love those kinds of comments where it's just yeah. like, how dare you say this thing that you obviously don't believe and that is like either sarcasm or talking about someone else's perspective. It's like, yeah, yeah that's awesome. That <laughs> um, was great. I um yeah I just I just to me I just if I if I have faith in this front office I just think that they have to know that and I believe this to be the case that this is rapidly approaching decision day you, you they've kicked it down the road for as long as they could um and I think to be on like for the most part I think that's worked out well and has maintained the potential upside that they can get but they have to execute a plan um now and it may not be the one that they want like for instance like in a dream world my plan would be you go out like the jazz are completely out of it you go out and get lowry marketing and you go out and get you know another 2a kind of player and yeah that team is not going to be like we don't have a top 15 guy and that team is not going to be like a title favorite but that team is going to be able to compete for a championship they may be in the top five in terms of like title favorites um and the thing is is that lowry markinen can play with another sorry he can be his best self and exactly elevate teammates and play with another high usage player this is the thing that people don't understand i mean you know um I'm not trying to, you know, throw shade at anybody, but this is why I found it a little bit silly that there was such a strong on, on Twitter, there was such a strong resistance to you when you when you said you thought Lowry was already better than Julius Randle. There was the direct output almost doesn't matter. The ability to it's how you provide that output that matters. And 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 the circumstances and the paradigms with which you're able to provide that output. Lowry Markinen can be his best self and not at all diminish RJ Barrett, Julius Jalen Brunson's ability to be their best selves. That and in in certain uh, respects, he elevates them because he get he's going to provide more gravity off the ball. He moves more off the ball. Um, he doesn't dominate possessions as much. He's very quick. He's very, he has very quick processing. So these are all things that make the team better without direct directly affecting your individual usage the only ways that julius randall has ever and this is julius randall at his best the only way he has ever made his team better all show up in his usage like there there's no intangible there's no 
None of that. And Lowry marketing is basically the exact opposite. He could be two for 10. He, he's basically, he's basically like the quickly of power forwards, except he, he's obviously not quickly on defense. But my point is, is that it is possible for Lowry marketing to go, you know, three for 12 in a game and miss a bunch of threes and still be helping you. I would say it is close to impossible for Julius Randle to not have a good statistical game and have a good game. Um, and that I think matters. it's what, I think it's what you said. Julius Randle's support in terms of helping the team, his impact all shows up in his usage. And I think that that is close to 100% the case. Like I think that there, there is a handful of players in the NBA who that is like true for. And almost all of those players are better than Julius Randle um, in terms of like impact per, per, per usage. Like Luca, like Luca, like Luca. Exactly. Luca's impact is all through his usage, but he's better than Julius Randle. Like, obviously I think this, I think this is loop by the way. I think we've landed on what lube is. <laughs> this is the, the LUB stat. The percentage of your usage. No, I'm being serious. Yeah. I think that we should figure I'm just I'm spitballing here. We did not discuss this at all. I think we should figure out a way to figure out what percentage of your impact is determined is is captured in your usage. I love that. I love that so much and Honestly, I, I you know I'm gonna tap into 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 my network of, of of data nerds to see if there's a way to figure this out because I would love to see that and I think that matters a lot in terms of understanding or getting close to understanding how synergy works when it comes to developing an NBA team and how the sum of the parts can be uh I damn it I don't know the phrase what is it. How it can be like maximum, like the, the whole can be greater than the sum of the parts. Right. The, the, the right. you want you want to be the opposite of a team that's less than the sum of its parts, where the whole is exactly. less than the sum of its parts. Correct. Yeah. Exactly. So, so just greater than, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, I love and to that. be clear, to that. be clear to to you know, if you're a listener who's any listener actually, if you're just any listener who's kind of skeptical, this does not at all diminish the value or the impact of somebody who just their the entirety of their impact is captured through their usage. You know, all their points, assists, and rebounds, that is a hundred percent of their impact. In fact, I would argue that probably the best player on every championship team or almost every championship team was like that. I mean, you know, you got Kawhi Leonard, okay, maybe not. You got um I mean, you have a Curry the, because Curry, right. not only does he commit, provide that impact through his usage, but the, per, the impact that he provides without, you know, outside of his usage is also like phenomenal. So, yeah. Right. Steph, Steph, Steph is the exception, obviously. But like LeBron, LeBron is basically a super LeBron. LeBron absolutely. Um, yeah. And but to me, I, I've always felt um, and this could sound crazy to some people. I've always felt that the reason the impact gap between Curry and LeBron is so much closer than their perceived skill and their perceived impact is, is because of how they play stylistically. Like I actually think LeBron plays a suboptimal style of basketball. He just happens to be so good at it that he's allowed to be the exception. But if I was, you know, coaching a bunch of people trying to be NBA players, I would much rather coach them to try to embody Steph's style than LeBron's. I don't think you can just go play like LeBron. <laughs> I think you have to be extremely special. So that's why this idea that like, oh, Julius is basically like LeBron. It's like, no, he's not. Like nobody can be LeBron. That's what makes him special. But if there was a way, if you could somehow put 
Steph Curry's off ball gravity in LeBron, that would like LeBron's already an alien, but that would just be like, he would be what Tiger Woods in 2000 was. He would, he would be lapping the field. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be silly. That'd be preposterous. Um, I, I love this concept that, that we've kind of landed on here. And I think that this is just a really great way to kind of describe where the faults are with Julius Randle. It's not that he's not a tremendous player. Obviously he has this issue with consistency. Um, but it is just like the style of player he is that is problematic in of itself when you're trying to build a championship contender. The style doesn't it doesn't lend itself towards that unless he was just better, right? Like you you use LeBron as an example for a reason. Like LeBron is probably playing a suboptimal style, but he's just so good that it 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 doesn't matter. He's just good and and Julius Randle is is not that and will never be that. Um, so that is that is kind of the issue here when we're talking about building a championship contender. And it took LeBron learning how to do stuff, learning how to help teams without the ball in his hands to win. Like, let's be clear. Like, like okay, yes, in 2009 and 2010, those teams were really, those Cavs teams were really bad. And LeBron needed to play the way he played. And it's incredible that those teams were both betting favorites to win the championship. But when he went to Miami in 2011, he was ill-prepared to elevate Bosch and Wade as co-stars. And to me, I, I know people love to you know joke, and LeBron did – there was something mental going on there. Obviously, you score 10 points in a finals game with J.J. Barea guarding you when you're one of the best players of all time. There's more to it. But LeBron wasn't the cutter he was. He wasn't the off-ball shooter he became in Miami. He didn't – he, he wasn't as evolved defensively as a help defender. He wasn't communicating the way we see him do it now. All these things that helped him evolve, that helped him grow as a player in terms of elevating his teammates in ways that don't show up in points, rebounds, assists in the box score, he needed to learn those things to become – there's a reason that Miami team won 66 games in 2013. That is the best team he's ever played on. And the LeBron James that played in 2013 – was nothing like the LeBron James that played in 2009. Even if you just zoomed out and looked at their statistical impacts, they're kind of close. Like if you look at their EPMs in 2013, 2009, if you look at any all-encompassing stat, they look pretty similar. But you zoom in, you watch the film, they were not similar at all. LeBron was playing off-ball more. He was cutting more. He was shooting threes. He shot 40% from three that season. He was an all. He should have won Defensive Player in the. Uh, he should have won Defensive Player of the Year. That is one of the best players we'll ever see in our lifetimes. We had a 40% three-point shooter playing off the ball who should have been defensive player of the year as a wing. And for Julius Randle, to to bring it back to Julius Randle, if he's going to be a player that can help a team get to the top, that's the improvement he needs to make. It's the stylistic improvement that you saw. These Bring it over to Luka Doncic. I truly don't believe that. I believe Luka on his own – is a fringe MVP level player. But I think that stylistically his team ceilings will always be limited until he learns to play in a way that elevates other co-stars and other good players. I think there's a reason that Jalen Brunson and Chris Epps Porzingis immediately thrived when they stopped playing with Luca because he turns great players into role players. Does Luca elevate role players to better role players better than anybody in the league? Absolutely. But there's a ceiling to Luka Doncic and role players. You ne- in this league, as talented as it is, as 
as smart as it is, you need other great players at their most impactful selves. And I don't think you can be that next to Luka Doncic. Um, and I don't think you can be that next to Julius Randle. I think Julius Randle is the definition of diminishing returns. I think he's the definition of a, a, a sum that's less or a whole that's less than the sum of its parts. And I don't know why we should have faith that he's going to evolve as a player. I think that's all really well said. And and to be honest, I largely agree with all of it. I think, I mean, I, to me, kind of like the, the comparison that you were making between the LeBron stylistically, the different LeBron stylistically, kind of speaks to how I was uh, suggesting to you the other day about the fact that I think that all-in-one impact metrics actually do overvalue the contribution of players who are their offensive engines to the team. Because I think you'll see consistently when a guy moves to a lesser dominant, you know, a ball dominant role, whether through usage themselves or playmaking for others, their impact will go down in those cases, even though like they're to you and I, it's like, well, they're helping the team in so many other ways while not directly uh, by being the person who has the ball in their hands, making every single decision. Um, you know, impact metrics tend to really value those guys that are doing that more so even than than guys who are creating, generating this this latent impact off the ball. Um, so I, I think we do see that. And so I, I, I le- do you want to respond to that really quick? Yeah, I just think it raises an interesting question about impact, uh, impact in general. Um, and I, I've wanted to ask you this for a few weeks because we both love Derek White, right? Um, Derek White is one of the best role play, if not the best role player in the league. You know, if you're a Knicks fan listening to this who doesn't watch a lot of Celtics, just imagine if Emmanuel quickly was a more consistent shooter and a better on-ball defender. That's what Derek White is. Um, he's incredible. Um, my question for you would be, do, do you think – how do you – how do you – uh, discern between absolute impact in what you're doing in the role you're playing versus replaceability. And what I mean by that is if you put, you know, Danny green is a great example to me. I think Danny green, his absolute impact in how, in, in his career is probably underrated historically, but I do think that what Danny green did in that role is probably easier to replace than a lead initiator. And so I'm going to bring it back to the Celtics and I'm going to talk a little bit about Jalen Brown versus Derek white. And I'm just going to send it over to you because I think it's a really interesting discussion. Um, I think that me and you would both agree that Derek white is more impactful in his role than Jalen Brown is in his role. I think, I think that's pretty reasonable to say, even if some people might laugh at that, Oh, Jalen Brown's an all-star yada, yada. But I do think that it would be tougher to replace the style of what Jalen Brown does versus what Derek White does. And maybe that's a bad example because Derek White is so elite at what he does. But I hope you I hope you stay within what I'm trying to say. I mean, stylistically, it's tougher to replace a, a primary initiator who can do that at a very uh, who can do that very well versus a role player who's trying really hard on defense and a good shooter. Um, so. How do you how do you weigh those things? Replaceability versus uh, immediate impact. Yeah, I, I think it's a great question. I think it's a great question, and my answer is probably complicated and not fully fleshed out in my own mind. But 
in my opinion, I think we overestimate how replaceable some of these off-ball players are. I think that it seems like, oh, yeah, we can just, I mean, I, I know Derek White is like the peak of this, but like we can just get a guy like Derek White, right? That should be easier to find than a guy like Jalen Brown, who does all this stuff like on the ball. And, and like that feels like it would be much more easy to replace. I don't think that, the, I don't think that that is true. I think if these guys were super replaceable, there would be more of them around the league. I think that because I, I think that when we talk about someone like Derek White, it's not just the fact that he's making threes and playing defense. There are so many other things that he does so tremendously well. His on-ball defense and his off-ball defense, his awareness, his communication on offense, his ability to cut, his his ability to be in the right place all the time to fill space, to fill gaps and fill space correctly, to fill the lane correctly, um, you know, to, 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 to move to the right spot, to generate the right passing windows, not just for himself, but for other teammates. There are all these intangible things that are happening. It's not just like, a guy who makes 40% of his threes and who can play defense on ball. It's like, there are so many other things that are happening. And when we start to like pinpoint all of these intangible things that a player like Derek white is doing, or even a, a player who's not as good as Derek white at those things, but like those types of things, um, I don't think it's a replaceable because I think that there would be a ton of guys across the league doing it. And if that was the case, their impact would be lower, right there to me, their impact would be lower because we would see a, a replacement level player like that is what impact is kind of being graded against uh, uh, the kind of average NBA player or a replacement level player. Um, then those guys would be better. And so then the, the relative to a replacement level player, their impact would be lower. But the fact that I just don't think that there are a lot of those guys that exist. And I think impact metrics uh, try to account for this. And I think they actually are underselling the importance of those roles. Because like I said, when you take a guy and you put a guy like LeBron on the ball constantly and his usage goes through the roof, and not just his usage usage as a, as a, a self-creator, but, a, but a, a playmaker for others, his impact will often be higher than when he comes off the ball and has less of that responsibility. Um, and so to me, I think when we talk about replaceability, we have to then define and understand like how replaceable are these guys? I don't think we can use kind of like our intuitions to say, well, I think it'd be easier to replace what Derek White or a lesser version of Derek White does than it would be to replace what an on-ball creator like Jalen Brown does. I just don't think so. I think NBA players are so ridiculously talented. I think that they're incredibly talented. And I think there are a lot of guys who can do stuff on the ball and generate shots, probably more than we, we give that credit for. And there are less guys who can do so much stuff off the ball on both sides of the, uh, on both sides of the court. Um, and we kind of underestimate or, or overestimate how easy it is to replace those guys. That's kind of where I, where, how I view it. I think it's like a sort of like a bias on both ends. And so I think if you uh, accounted for the bias on both ends, we would find that it's actually like pretty similarly valuable. Yeah, that's a great answer. I, I've, I felt in a, uh, an immense amount of pride watching the game with my dad yesterday. Um, I don't know if you remember, but there was a play where uh, where R.J. Barrett was face guarding uh, Devin Booker really high up, and Devin Booker went back door, and then Euroed passed quickly for a layup. Yeah, yeah. And my dad was like, literally, like out loud, he was just like, "Man, Quickly's amazing." And I just kind of turned to him and I was like, "What?" Like he just gave up, and he was just like, "How many other players in the league are even there to stunt like would that? would even was, be there? Yeah, that's would, a would great even point. be in that spot? Yeah." yeah. And I was just like. 
I've watched a lot of basketball with my dad. Let's go. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> at least one, other, one one other person is starting to get it. That's awesome. Um, that's a, that's yeah, a, that's a really awesome observation. And I think I think it's those kinds of things that it's like in a vacuum, it feels like, oh yeah, that, that, that guy should be replaceable. But it's like, yeah, how many other guys would be even be there to like lower the percentage chance that Booker makes that shot or make it more difficult for Booker or have a lesser player than Booker not be able to make that shot, right? Like Booker is so freaking skilled that it it looks easy. Like I'm just going to Euro around this guy and just score like, but another player besides Devin Booker that who's not at that level, might have a lot more trouble finishing over that, um, you know, quickly being in the right place and making a, a really solid contest without fouling. So to me, there are all these little minus, minor, minor, minuscule subtleties and nuances that 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 we that are really hard to observe. And and even the ones that we do observe, it's like, wow, that's dope that we noticed that. But like, there are so many other things that are happening that we don't, you know, that are really hard to perceive. And on top of that, not only is it difficult. Uh, not only is it difficult to be a like a lead initiator, but that that's really good and impactful. But to be a lead initiator that's really good and impactful, and not overly ball dominant to the point of diminishing returns, that's another aspect that I think is a difficult balance, right? So that's on the other end of the like lead initiator. It's like hard, being hard to replace. You can get a guy who is really good at kind of initiating the offense and being a playmaking ball dominant guy but like how many of them are are good enough that they're not kind of like going overboard or kind of doing too much relative to the 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 value that they're contributing i mean julius randall is like the 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 case of that right like um and, and so yeah i think that that's part of it as well i i i also i actually think this is a good um segue into another Knicks player who I think is relevant to this discussion and that's Jalen Brunson um I don't I don't want to pour water on Knicks fans uh happiness because Brunson's been amazing um so let's get that out of the way Brunson's been incredible uh lately he is you know play I don't think he's going to keep shooting 47% from 3 but he's found it inside the arc and you know, he has a bunch of assists recently. Um, so he's creating for uh, other teammates when he's got the ball in his hands, he had that great backdoor pass to Julius Randall, uh, in the fourth quarter last night that helped the Knicks close the lead, um, or close the deficit. Excuse me. I do think questions remain about Jalen Brunson, just how high you can go with him and honestly, the more this happens, I think the Knicks are starting to look like last year's Knicks again, which isn't a bad thing. I'm sure there are plenty of Knicks fans who are like, dude, did you watch the Knicks from 2000 to 2010? Like, we're, yeah, we'll take that, you know, and that's that's cool. But if we're talking about winning a championship, to me, this what, what we're seeing from Brunson and what we're in turn seeing from the rest of the team just emphasizes how important it is that the Knicks' next star – is someone like Embiid or Giannis, somebody who can be their best selves and doesn't infringe on Brunson's ability to be his best self. Because I don't know if other Knicks fans have noticed this, but there's a pretty strong correlation between how Brunson plays and how inverse correlation between Brunson and RJ's output. And we're now 16 games into a season after seeing it for an entire season. So, you know, that's almost a hundred regular season games of, you know, when Brunson has it going, 
RJ just kind of disappears with the starters and Brunson didn't have it going to start the season. And so the team ran the offense, ran more plays for RJ. He got more pistol. He got more pick and roll. And all of a sudden his overall impact, which was larger and it was more positive. And then these, I know RJ is coming back from injury. I, you know, I want, I want to emphasize that be patient, but I, I do think it's something worth monitoring. You know, this is a three game sample of RJ since injury where Brunson has been amazing. And RJ just has kind of been there. And if you want to be a glass half full kind of guy, let's point out that RJ's defense hasn't fallen off. You know, his his defense has remained even since coming back from injury. One of my biggest criticisms, criticisms of him last season is that amidst his offensive struggles, he let that affect his defense. He, he was a defensive negative across last regular season. Um, and I think a, a large part of that was him struggling to find his role within the offense and struggling with his efficiency, not being satisfied with his offensive role. I think he views himself as on Brunson and Randall's level as a scorer, as an offensive player. And when he's not getting the touches he, or when he wasn't getting the touches he wanted, I think he let that trickle into his impact on the other side of the ball. I don't think we're seeing that right now. I think his defense has remained good. So if you want to be a glass half full kind of person, let's focus on that. But bring it back to Brunson, bring it back to, you know, what percentage of your impact is defined by your usage, what effect that has on your teammates. I think Brunson is relevant here. And I think that his correlation with RJ's output is strong. I mean, I'm going to use last year's Boston game as an example. Everybody remembers that game as Emmanuel quickly, 38 point masterpiece. We win in double overtime. How many people remember that Julius Randle and RJ Barrett both scored efficient 30 point games as well? That was possible because of how Emmanuel quickly plays stylistically. He is a teammate elevator. Even if his size limits his ability as a passer, he is not a heliocentric offensive player, even when he is the primary initiator. Other people get their chances. And to me, we've seen for four seasons now, or three, three and 3.2 seasons now, RJ Barrett plays his best when he's with Emmanuel quickly because quickly is more egalitarian in his style. Now, bring it back to Brunson. Is that necessarily a bad thing? No, but you have to be a certain level of of heliocentric player if you're going to win a championship. This is the whole point of what we're talking about. Um, so that was, again, I, I talk a lot, apologies to the listeners, but, and that's a lot to unpack, but, uh, just sort of what are your thoughts there? Actually? Yeah. How are you and, and his impact on his teammates? No, that was great. I, I, I feel like I, I'm feeling more and more like as we do episodes of hot hand theory that we have like the perfect amount of agreement and disagreement. Like, I think we like agree like 70% and disagree like 30%, which I think is a great formula. We should um, just save the clip of us discussing the uh, the money the the money <laughs> the money hall question. Like, just release that as a full clip so people can say that we do disagree on stuff. And you know, That's we we do, we do have to work through stuff. <laughs> that is that is totally true. But 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 we talk enough on the same level that we can work through these things. And 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 as far as like the the agreement part is that you know throughout this the week watching games i write notes that i want to you know bring up on this podcast and and moving forward <clears throat> um and literally the note that i wrote to myself for 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 this pod was concerned uh equals looking so similar to last year uh 
Last five games, passes per game, same as last year, coincides with Brunson's emergence back to his level towards last year. Um, so we are on the same page as far as seeing some of these correlations. Uh, you know, I, I I know their offense was top five last year. You know, I I I'm, I I was never, and I took a lot of flack for this, and I'm not saying that I'm I'm vindicated in it necessarily, but. I was never concerned that it was like real um, and and notoriously on Nick's film school, I, I, I called it fake and a- Andrew Claudio thought I said rat fake and said rat fake. And I said, yeah, rat fake. Fine. So I am the person who said their offense was rat fake. And I just don't think I just don't think I mean, and to me, it was, again, not saying that it was vindicated, but we saw that an inability for that to translate into the playoff scenario. And I just don't think people understanding how much outlier shooting improves an offense to me. Um, and I think even you and I, Jeff, disagree about this because I put a ton of RJ's improvement early on in the season in terms of his impact on offense specifically on his incredible 15% increase shooting bump from three. And you were mentioning how some of RJ's output correlates with Brunson's output, you know, a negative correlation, so to speak. And to me, RJ as a person playing off of Brunson is just much better off being a knockdown shooter. Like his impact would be higher as a knockdown shooter and his fit would be better next to Brunson. And so we've seen, you know, obviously these are all small sample size stuff, but we talked about EPM last week and we're talking about impact metrics. Um, if we look at EPM, his um, RJ's three-point percentage is down from 48 to 42, and his EPM is down um, down to 1.3, which is, you know, it, it, he dropped from first on the team to third on the team, and his impact is around Isaiah Hartenstein's range, whereas he was, like, clearing away the most impactful player um, prior to, the you know, the couple of games that he took off. What does that mean? Does that mean that, you know, he is falling off. He's falling back to earth. So, and so on. I don't think that that necessarily means that to me, the biggest thing that I mentioned and talking about RJ would that I know would fall back to earth was the shooting. Like the, he's not going to be a 48% three point shooter. It's just like not possible. Um, in my opinion, maybe it's possible. It's very, very, very unlikely. Um, other things he could definitely maintain. You mentioned, Jeff, his defense. I believe his defense has maintained um, so much so that they trust him to be the primary on, a primary on-ball defender against Devin Booker, and his off-ball defense has been very solid as well and continues to be so. I think and then, defense- this is this is the game after they trusted him to be the primary defender on Jimmy Butler and bench Josh Hart to do it. Absolutely. So he's earned, he's earned that. He's earned it, and I agree with those decisions because I do think he's earned it. Um, at the same time, it's the offensive end where I think so much of his impact on this team with Jalen Brunson in, in his role is going to be contingent on his ability to shoot and space the court and make open shots. And if he's going to shoot 30, let's say 37% is where he ends up, 38%, something like that, which I think would be excellent for RJ Barrett. To me, that offensive impact is going to drop off a cliff. The, the, the distance from 47% three-point shooting to 37% three-point shooting in terms of his impact on this team, on another team where he was more of a primary um, initiator and, and didn't play alongside Jalen Brunson, I think he could still um, have that level of impact, uh, a really high level of impact on this team when he's playing so many minutes next to Jalen Brunson, you're going to have to be able to shoot. You're going to have to be able to shoot at a high percentage. 
And I think that that is kind of the mismatch there. I think it would help to give a ton of his use, a ton of Julius Randle's usage to RJ Barrett. So if we were doing something like what we talked about earlier, what you mentioned, putting RJ at the four, um, <laughs> shipping Randall out and, and, and having it break down like that, I think we could still see some some really great impact from RJ despite not shooting, you know, even with his shooting around 37, 38%. But if he's going to play with those two guys primarily, um, he's going to have to shoot really well to, 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 to really be the value offensive player that, that he, you know, many of us think that he can be. So that's kind of, that's kind of how I'm thinking about it with, with the, the correlation between those two. And the last thing I just want to say is that I'm not convinced, I, I, I don't believe this, but I'm not convinced that Jalen Brunson is not good enough of an offensive primary initiator and creator. He's not good enough to you know, have a team compete for a championship that he is the, the, the one, the, the one or the one A uh, creator and initiator. I think he could be. I, I don't think he is, but I think he could be. Um, and I, I, I just, it's just the way that he gets shots. He does it so consistently. He started off the season a little rough. His mid range shooting is all the right, already all the way back up to 46%. He started off really horribly in terms of shooting from the mid range. And he, he's gotten it all the way back up to 46%. He's shooting 47% from three. Again, I don't believe that that's real, but you know, I do think, I do think Jalen Brunson who shot 42% last year on a tough shot diet shot 41% in 2021, um, you know, playing off of Luka Doncic. I do think Jalen Brunson is a 40% three point shooter and put and uh, upwards of a 40% three point shooter. So I don't think he's as far off from his shooting where his shooting is going to land as somebody like RJ Barrett. I do think there is a world where Jalen Brunson can be your primary offensive initiator and you compete for a championship. If those guys around him are better shooters and do fit his kind of stylistic, uh, synergistic uh, match better, are, are, are more of a match for him. And one part of the reason why I say that is because he also has played pretty well off ball in many cases. He gets to the right spots. Um, he moves well without the ball. He obviously is an amazing spot-up three-point shooter. And he, he, he has shown an ability also to, to, to make good cuts and get into the lane um, when, when defenses are occupied to kind of break that, further break down a defense that's being exploited. So I think there is that I, – I don't rule it out is what I'm saying. I don't rule out Jalen Brunson as being able to be the primary 1A or 1 on a championship level offensive uh, kind of an offensive engine. But I think, I think we still need to see that. So I just think that it's not the right fit at this point having Randall and RJ be the primary two and three around him. Do you agree that for Brunson to be the offensive engine on a championship contender, he kind of needs to find the shack to his Kobe? Like he needs needs to. I wouldn't say, and I know what you. I know what you mean. Like a like a Embiid, like a Giannis. I I I I don't think he needs to. And and the and that's why I I've continued to posit this with the Lowry marketing plan. And the 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 point of that plan is to say like Lowry marketing is pro and, and Jalen Brunson are probably similarly impactful players overall. Maybe Brunson's a, can be a little better um, if it, you know if his defense kind of maintains and continues to take steps forward, but. I do think you can have a scenario where you have like three really excellent, excellent players, top 20 level guys, 
and that be enough to win a championship. I don't think that's the way that we've seen teams do it like most consistently. We see we see the super dominant alpha superstar Jokic, the LeBron, the Curry, you know, those are the, the you know, those are the the Giannis, those are the guys that we see win, but I don't think you need to do that. And furthermore, I don't think the Knicks are really in a position that they're going to be able to do that. And so to me, this is like an exit ramp um for an alternative plan that has a chance of working and even if it doesn't work at least like you know we'll we'll, we'll feel like we we have a chance so that that's kind of where i'm at with that. I, I think of course if he had a Giannis next to him if he had an Embiid next to him of course that would be ideal but those guys are at a level where they're not really i mean it is the Shaq to the kobe because i Shaq is says <laughs> Shaq is much better than kobe um but but yeah i i i don't think he needs that i think he can still do it without that so who is the worst player that you think the Knicks could reasonably acquire and replace Randall with that you would be like, yeah, this team, this team is a title contender. That's such a great question. If it's, if you just be one-to-one replace, pluck out Randall and put another player in. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I don't think that I don't, I think it would be like a Giannis. Like, I don't think it would be, it would be like a Giannis or like a Jason Tatum. Like, I don't think the Knicks could just like lose Randall and replace him with, um, replace him with like a, a Lowry marketing. And now they're a title contender. I think you would have to replace Randall with Lowry marketing and, and then also make an upgrade somewhere else as well. Like a Paul George type for, for an RJ Barrett, something like that. Um, is what would be necessary or a Paul George, I'm sorry for a Quentin Grimes something like that, that, that kind of double upgrade would be necessary to offset the, the height that you're not getting with, by replacing Randall with like a, a Giannis, you know? Yeah. Paul George would be, Paul George is really good. <laughs> yeah. Paul, Paul George is pretty good. I, but, but at the same time is he's not, you know, a Giannis, he's not an Embiid. He's not, you know, he's not even like a, I mean, he's not a Tatum, you know, he's not, he's not on that level. I think he's like right below that level. And I think you have, like, he can be considered a one B to Jalen Brunson's one a, if you get a one, this is, this is kind of how I view it. If you get like a one B and like a two a, right. Like Lowry Markin and B in that two a, I think that that enough, that's enough in the aggregate. And in terms of the synergy to be able to push you into contention, and that, that's a really cobblestone way of doing it and may not be the way that Knicks fans want to do it. Knicks fans want to do it with get Devin Booker, get, you know, get, get Embiid, get, get Tatum, get Giannis. But I don't know that those are realistic targets and I haven't seen like any like practical plan in, in which we are acquiring one of those players prior to Julius Randle getting signed to an extension, which I think is, as I mentioned, that's D-Day to me. Yeah. Uh, I, I hope you're ready for D-Day, my friend. <laughs> get, 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 you gotta build, you gotta build yourself a bunker. Save, yeah, save yourself. That's... You know, mm. you and you and your fiance. You gotta, you know, just don't save room to, for Dante Divincenzo. Don't, don't, don't do that to your fiance. She's starting. And, to, she's starting to come around on Divincenzo. I'll say. So, okay. With his with right. his play improving and. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Dante. Dante I, I thought that was an interesting thing about the the Suns game. He only played 14 minutes. Um, you know, we, we've spent so much time talking about theory and Julius Randle. We haven't really talked much about anything else. Um, look, I, I think I think there's a lot to be desired about how Tibbs is rotating. I mean, 
quickly played 11 of the first 32 minutes again. He's coming off the bench after Josh Hart again. That's that's a pretty big slide. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how they can convince him that this is what's best for him. I don't, you know, and, and, <laughs> they, and again, they, like, they won't. Yeah, they won't be able to. No, they won't. So you, I, you just, you just think he's gone. No, I think they're going to, I mean, I think they'll force him to stay. I, I don't, I, I think they'll match whatever he's, whatever he gets uh, an offer. He's going to get offered a lot. I, I, I still think, I still think that the Knicks will be able to scare off other teams. Um, and so it's going to suppress uh, his, the, the amount that he will get. I, I think he'll still get offered a lot by a team who's willing to sit there for three days and miss out on other potential free agents. But I, I think the Knicks will do enough to scare off other teams that the, the, the offer sheets won't be like something that they couldn't match. I think the Spurs are going to offer him a max. <laughs> you think they're going to offer him a max deal? Yeah. Are you well, seeing then, what's going on in San Antonio, dude? Did you see? Did you see that 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 Sohan fast break clip? That was one of the most ridiculous things I've ever seen. I mean, the Sohan thing is. I I'm so happy we were on that. We we me and you both were like, and it just started with me looking at Trey Jones's impact stats and being like, yeah. what is hap- What is <laughs> happening here? And like, we were both just like, why is Jeremy Sohan playing point guard? Like, what the hell is going on there? That but that's a self inflicted thing, though. You know what I mean? Like, they're doing that to themselves. Like, I I, I don't think. Yeah. I think this team is not as bad as they've been. Like, it they're feels not. like it's intentional. <laughs> Dude, if they if they if they give quickly a max and draft and get a top three pick, do you know how good a shape they're going to be in? Like, if Wembenyama can just become an MVP, they they can just they don't they would have they could just win a championship. Like, not next season, but they'd be really they they'd be on a path to just like where you can just be like, yeah, they can win a championship. Like, Vassell's yeah. a good player. They'd get a top three pick. You know, nail that. I don't, I don't know, man. Like. I would I, if I was in the Spurs front front office, I would just be like, "Yeah, quickly is the guy," and I would just throw. Do you know office. the nine steps to build an underground bunker? Um, because I just Googled it, and <laughs> uh, step one is get permission. So I am going to work on on getting the the proper permits uh, after the recording of this pod. Oh, I thought you were gonna like ask your fiance. Oh, that's not what, not what getting that kind of permission. No, no, no. <laughs> She's it's just for her own safety. She'll she'll join me uh, voluntarily. But um, oh, yeah, that 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 doesn't sound great. 